and obviously I'm a trans woman living in Nigeria, which is like, like it's, it's a crazy navigation. When we are going in desert, we walk for good six hours. My leg was trapped. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lay of the Land. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime 2021 World Drug Report states that about 275 million people globally use drugs in the year leading up to the report, and 36 million people suffered from drug use disorders. Furthermore, a 2018 report by the UNODC revealed that there were about 14.3 million drug users in Nigeria at the time, and close to 3 million people suffered from a drug use disorder. It isn't new news that drug abuse is prevalent in Nigeria, affecting many people all across the country. We've seen several reports and documentaries that have covered this, especially in recent years. But what is it like to go through a drug addiction and survive it? Our guest on the podcast today is David Folarami. He suffered from a crack cocaine addiction for many years, and his story is chilling, to say the least. This is the first part of two episodes with David, and this is a story that needs to be heard. I pretty much like to start from the beginning. And when I say the beginning, my background. So I was born in Kaduna State to Christian family, a very strict Christian family. And then I think at some point in my story, I'm going to explain to you why I usually like, like to start from this. So um, my parents at the time thought the best method of parenting was to make sure their kids were always in church, go for all of the Christian programs. And they just felt like, okay, if you do this, then they're going to turn out right. Um, So I went to Christian primary schools, Christian secondary schools, and I went to Covenant University for my first degree. Now, ironically, it was on the grounds of Covenant University that I first had my first contact with um, substances. So at the time, I was in my second year. And... um, there was a building that was still under construction. It's the current university library. And then some of my friends say, oh, David, let's go into this place. We want to do something. And I'm like, curious. Why would anybody want to go into a building still under construction? But then I followed them. And then I found out that um, some of my schoolmates there were um, smoking marijuana, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol. Uh, I just absorbed all those things. I didn't act on it. So I didn't use at that time. But then these things had... That was the first impression on my mind. So I kept thinking about it again and wanting to try. That curiosity just kept setting in. But I didn't give in to it. And then after school, I went to the UK for my master's. Uh, I lived in the same apartment with two Europeans. And then um, it was the life of the party. These Europeans were doing all sorts of drugs. One was from Spain, the other was from Italy. And then I started experimenting with mushrooms, marijuana, alcohol, ketamine. Uh, MDMA and then the occasional lines of coke here and there Uh, at some point I had to come back to Nigeria for a family function and then a friend introduced me to crack cocaine and this was the actual beginning of seven years of a walk through hell because I had like I said I had experimented with so many other substances and I didn't get hooked. But then from the very first hit of crack, I knew this was something different. I remember very well that day was in August of that year. I was with 
a friend. She had had crack cocaine before. And then the moment I took it, she was like, welcome to a different world. That's what she said. And she was very correct because it, it was a totally different experience. So I started spending so much money on crack. At the time, a gram was about 15,000 naira for the good stuff. So I started spending so much money. I spent up all of my savings. And then at the time, my parents had rented me an apartment in Guarimpa area of Abuja. So I started selling the property in the apartment. That's when I knew I had a problem because I'll sell off the TV. I'll sell the sofa, sell my bed. I sold everything. The last thing that was left in the apartment was the chandelier my mom gave me as a gift. And then one day I called my dealer. He comes over and he was like, dude, you have nothing else to give. I mean, you don't have money. You don't have anything. So I said, would you take the chandelier? So he says, okay. So he starts pulling it off. And then he goes around the house to take the bulbs from the lamp holders. So that night I was in abject darkness. I had run out of the drugs. And... um. I started thinking to myself, okay, what can I do to get more? What can I do to get more? Now, this is a significant part of my story because the action I took next changed everything. So I called my landlord and I said, look, I'm not staying in your house anymore. My parents had paid for two years. I stayed there for about three months. Can you give me the balance of my rent? So he says he's going to give me the money for just the second year, which was 750000 naira, And then I have to leave his house, which means I have to forfeit nine months from the first year. So I said, okay, cool. Where do I meet you? So he says, come to bank XYZ tomorrow and then I'll give you your money. So I, I'm there by 7 a.m. because the urge is there. The cravings are there. I want the money so much. I want the money so quickly so I can get my stuff. And then true to his word, he's there at 8 a.m. He goes into the bank, withdraws 750,000 naira in cash and gives it to me. So I'm standing in front of the bank. I'm placing calls to my dealers. And I'm like, where are you guys? Where are you guys? I mean, I need this. I need this. I'm pacing frantically back and forth. And then somebody walks up to me and says, I've heard you over the phone. And it seems like you're trying to get crack. And I look at him and I'm like, yes, I am. And he says, instead of calling a dealer, why don't I take you to a bank? Now, when you get to the bank, you don't need to call anybody. It's an open market where drugs are sold. So I look at him and I'm like, you mean there's a place like that in Abuja? He said, of course. It's not even far from where we are. So I'm like, okay, take me there. Let's go. And then we walked about seven minutes or less. And then he takes me into this drug house. And then I see so many people, young, old, male, female, people who spoke well, people who couldn't speak well, all walking like zombies at that time of the morning. And I could tell that these people had run out of drugs and then obviously were looking for their fix. So he takes me to the dealer and then the dealer tries to ascertain that I'm not a cop or I'm not trying to get him into trouble. And then when he goes through the regular questions and he finds out that, okay, this guy's actually a user, he brings out the most stash of cocaine I have ever seen in my life. And so I sat down there and started spending that 750000 and I ran out in less than five days wow. of the entire sum. Yes. So, um, when that was done, I needed to leave there because the bunk is a terrible place. It's a horrible, dirty, despicable place that um, the worst sort of things are done there. And then you have people urinating on the floor, throwing up on the floor, 
Is this a place that's still open and yes. active today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of my story, I'll come back to it because part of what we do in our foundation now is we still go back there for outreaches and uh, what we call harm reduction practices. Yeah. Okay, so back to my story. So, like, it's a really terrible dirty place because every single money you come in there goes to crack cocaine or heroin. So you have ladies who are seeing their monthly cycles and will not even buy sanitary towels, you know, and will just, you know, just do it there. So that's the way it is. And then, um, okay, so now I wanted to leave because I was out of money in under a week. And I couldn't even get 15 hour to take a bike from where the place was to the junction. So that's how terrible it is. Once your money is done, it's done. Nobody wants to uh, uh, attend to you anymore. I'll give you one of the saddest and most extreme cases of struggle addiction that I experienced in the bunk. There's so many stories. I might not be able to go through all of them in this short short time. But there's this lady. She's um, At the time, she was 17. So she was pregnant. And um, she gave birth in the bunk. I used to talk to her while she was pregnant because now I didn't have a house anymore. <laughs> I had taken my rent back. I didn't want my parents to know I was in the bunk. So I made them feel I was still at home and doing my work. So, But I was living in the bunk full-time now. So this lady, I got close to her and I kept asking her how she got into the situation. And of course, she said she got to the bunk. She couldn't afford to buy crack and so she slept around and then she, now she was pregnant and she didn't want to go back home. So she gave birth to a bouncing baby boy in the bunk, a very beautiful child. And then two weeks into, after the birth of her child, it was back to business as usual for her because nobody was giving her all of the preferential treatments anymore. Now she had to hustle to make money to be able to spend on drugs. But then one of Dila said to her one day, she said, look, if, if you really don't have the money, why don't you sell your child? And um, we'll give you X, Y, Z amount of drugs and we can add some little money for you. Stop. Oh, yes. I was sitting next to her when they were having that conversation. So I was expecting a vehement no. Why would you say a thing like that? And then she didn't say anything. So I could tell she was considering it. So I looked at her and I was like, no, don't. Don't. That's a child. That's a human being. That's life. And then she holds my hand and she's like, she doesn't have a need for the child. The child would be better off with somebody else. Of course, she was trying to justify the action she was about to take. So she agreed to give out her child. And um, they made some calls and unmarked tinted vehicle drove, came around and the child was passed through the window. The person didn't even come out of the car. Just passed through the window and then they gave her some drugs and, and a little cash. Now, that's one of the most extreme cases of addiction or what people will do, what people will give up to get drugs uh, to get to get drugs, anyway. So and sorry to add, it also yeah, highlights the the black market for children mm -hmm. and the extent of that in this country as well. Yes, it does. Unfortunately, there are many underground baby factories in Nigeria, and child harvesting has become so prevalent on the black market. But why does this underground business exist? I mean, there are so many reasons. Teenagers have unwanted pregnancies and they are convinced to give up their children for money. And with the huge stigma around infertility in Nigeria, which by the way seems to be on the rise globally, 
There is a high demand for babies by couples who can't have kids and are unwilling to go down the adoption or surrogacy road, again because of stigmatization. Poverty, of course, is also a contributing factor, and according to the International Labour Organization, the human trafficking industry generates about $150 billion annually. Okay, so uh, I was at the Bronx, and then all sort of horrible things kept happening, but at some point I knew I had to leave. I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling sick. I had lost so much weight. Uh, so I go back home and I tell my mom, when she sees me, because she, she can't reach me on phone, I sold my phone. Usually that's the first thing anyone struggling with sort of addiction will sell. The phone is the easiest thing to, col- to give out as collateral and you'll never collect it back. You'll never get it back. So she couldn't reach me, so she was worried. She was worried sick. And then she saw me and she was like, what happened? I'd lost so much weight. So I, t- I, t- I told her, okay, um, I have a problem. I'm struggling with um, drugs. But then my mom is this naive northern woman who doesn't know anything about stuff like this. And then because she's also a very religious person, she decided that, okay, she was just going to pray for me with the hope that that addiction will just fizzle away. So that's how she knew how to handle it. I mean, that's, that's what she knew. So she did a lot of prayers and then, of course, it didn't work. So... Now I was in the house, in the family house. So I started picking things from the house. So I'll take her laptop today and take it to the bank, come back. Was she aware that you were doing that? At some point, no, but eventually, yes. Because it started becoming obvious that things were getting missing in the yeah. house. So, and then my dad, my dad too just felt that um, I was using money for something and not just drugs. He didn't think I was hooked on drugs. It just He also felt cocaine wasn't available in Nigeria. I thought it was the thing of the West. It was only in movies. So when I said cocaine, he was like, when you're ready to tell me what's wrong with you, come back. You know what's interesting about that? Mm. That is an impression that a lot of people have. Yeah. But to the best of my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I understand that Nigeria gets some of the most high produce or high what what is what is it called high produce Potent. cocaine mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. that there is in the world and apparently it's a triangle so a lot of the shipments coming in from South America heading to Europe Perfectly. come to Nigeria yeah, it's a first hub. yeah it comes to West Africa Ghana Nigeria before going to Europe Well this is facts the UNODC's global report on cocaine 2023 states that Nigerians have become very actively involved in the global shipments of narcotics. It also states that the country plays a significant role in the distribution of cocaine within the continent's sub-region and beyond. Many shipments from South America come to countries in West Africa before being distributed across the rest of the world. I'd like to go back to the first time you tried crack cocaine. Mm. Many people, young people in particular, who are interested in experimenting think, oh, I'm just going to try it once. It's not going to be an issue. I don't have an addiction. Not knowing where that trying once can lead to. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? And why was it, why did you feel as though this was different and this was something that you needed? So, Crack cocaine, which is the rock-solid form, uh, is a highly dependent, psychologically dependent, 
very evasive, extremely addictive drug. Now, unlike cocaine, which is, and I'm not trying to teach anybody how to use drugs, (laughs) unlike cocaine, which is usually snotted through um, the nose, uh, crack is smoked through a pipe. And this mode of ingestion in itself, biologically speaking, is going to affect a person almost a hundred times faster than ingesting regular cocaine. Now, in the first, in also, that's why the dealers in the crack cocaine boom in the early 80s in, yeah. in, in the US introduced it because they knew they were going to make more profit of it. They knew people are going to get a lot more addicted to this. People are going to want to buy it more. So back to your question. Now, when my friend, let's call him X, came to see me, he came with another lady I know. She's um, half Russian. So she had already been using crack. That was my own first experience. The moment I lit up the pipe and inhaled the fumes from the burning crack, it was, it was the euphoria. You know, I used to tell people something. It's, it's, it's almost as if you have 100 orgasms at the same time. Seriously, because it was something like I had never experienced before. And I also like to tell people I had experimented with ketamine, with MDMA, with mushrooms, with uh, uh, marijuana. You know, I've done all these things, acid, you know, in the UK. And I didn't feel this way. So what is this different thing that had just taken, that had turned everything around for me? And that was when I knew I was in trouble. I just knew it. I just knew, man, I was in trouble. I was, because I'm the kind of person that does things to the extreme. If I love, I love to the extreme. You know, if I'm going to go after something, I'm going to go after it to the extreme. So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to handle myself. And exactly that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. So back now to when you're in, back in your parents' house, your parents Mm. are in denial about what's going on, but you keep taking things from the house and selling Mm. to get your produce. Where does the story go from there? Okay. So um, at some point in time, that wasn't sustainable anymore. So I um, moved back to the bunk because I I, I thought about it. People in the bunks, how how are they getting money? So I'm like, okay, instead of staying in my house, and having to commute uh, maybe 45 minutes to the bunk, why don't I just stay there where the produce is readily available if you have the money? So I go back to the bunk and I start making friends with people. How do you guys do this? So, of course, um, for the ladies, it's one way. But for the guys, you have to go out to hustle. So people go out to steal. People go out to defraud people. People go out to tell lies. People go out to beg. So I said, okay, I'm too scared to steal. (laughs) Or to defraud anybody, but I can beg. Yeah. And I speak relatively well. So I'll go out and tell you stories about how I'm just coming out from jail and then how I need your help to get someplace. And then you're going to feel sorry for me and then you give me money. So I was doing this on a daily basis and I was making some money, maybe 30000 a day from begging. Yeah. So I'll take this back to the bank every evening. So that's what I was doing. At this point in time, I'd exhausted all of my friends. Because I was owing everybody I knew. I told everybody one story or the other. So my debt profile was already rising in the millions. So I couldn't talk to my friends anymore. So I'll just walk up to an absolute stranger, come up with a story. And then you'll find the stranger taking me, his or her car to an ATM machine and giving me the money. 
that I needed. So I was doing this. And there were times I could say I made over 100,000 in a day. Yeah, from doing that. So that's what I was doing. So I was now living back in the bunk. Then um, in 2014, one of my friends came from the UK. So when her house, a lady, and she also used, her house is in area two area of Abuja. So we're using the, from September of that year down to, no, 2013. Yes, 2013 September. So we're there using and we're constituting a nuisance. Everybody just knew that she, myself, and the initial guy who introduced me to Crack X were always in the house. So we're always using, we're a nuisance because these people don't go out to work. We don't do anything. We just come down to see a dealer, go back up, use. So 14th February, 2014, Valentine's Day, we are in the house and then um, we had sold everything in her house. So we just had um sofa or something we could sleep on. And then we're trying to get some produce. So I went downstairs to see the uh, dealer because I spoke Hausa language or I speak Hausa language. And most of these dealers at the time were just, okay, Hausa. So I went down to see him. And then I noticed that there was a Hilux, Hilux van packed that usually is in there. So something just told me that something is off. So I run back upstairs and I'm telling these people, like, guys, man, they're onto us. And they think I'm being paranoid because we've been doing drugs for so long, you know, back day in, day out. Just so they're like, no, man, David, just go back and get our stuff. I'm like, no, some people are down there and I know they've come for us. So while we're having this argument back and forth, we had gunshots. Yes, we had gunshots and we had a lot of noise. I said, I told you guys. So we started clearing the house trying to flush what was left of whatever, trying to fling all of the paraphernalia over the fence, and then the lights go out. It was like a scene from an actual movie. Then we had boom, boom, boom on the door. And then the lady is scared. The other guy is scared. And then we hear that there are officers from the NDLEA. So I'm like, let's just open. I mean, what's the worst they're going to do? So we opened the door. Apparently, they are the ones that turned off the light, turned off the lights from the main switch outside. So they put the lights back on, and they make us lie down on the floor. And they like they've had reports from this apartment that um, three young people are just uh, basically doing nothing but drugs and all of that. So we tried to deny it and said, "Okay, they're going to take us to their office for a test." And I'm like, "Well, whatever." So uh, they put us in handcuffs, and then this was like two a.m. in the morning. So because of the gunshots, apparently what happened was, what caused the gunshot was they found the dealer who was I was supposed to see and they tried to arrest him and he ran. He jumped into another house. That's when they shot. So people had woken up. People were looking out their windows, what's going on. And then they paraded us out in handcuffs. So we're like, uh, <laughs> it was funny. And then, then was they, that a bit of a wake-up call as well? You see, in the course of my story, you're going to find out that there were many wake-up calls but I didn't wake up. So, it's just one of many. So, they took us to their office. And then, while we are there, my parents didn't know where I was since I left the house. So, they're interviewing us and I'm like, uh, they ask the lady, who are you? Tell us about yourself. And she does. Then they ask the guy. Uh, the guy's father is an ex-senator. So, once they hear the name, okay, they, they know, okay, they know this person. And they ask me, and I'm like, my parents are dead. Which was a lie because I just didn't want them to bring my parents into that picture. So they say, okay. So they put us in the um, 
into the cell and they call her parents and his parents. So we're there for about two days till February 16th. Then her parents come first and then they have a deal with the NDLA office. Like you have to take her to rehab. If not, we're going to get her locked up. So her parents took her to rehab in Delta State. Then he and I are waiting, like, who's going to come and get us? And then I remember very well, I know my mom's perfume from my sleep. I was like, my mom is here. It's like, how do you know? I'm like, I know my mom is here. So eventually they come to open the cell doors and they're like, you two come. And then when we're going up, I see his sister, who we, she was my mate in my, in my, when I was studying in UK too. So she was like, oh, David, what happened? Why, why do you keep doing this? And all of that, and all of that. So I was like, just leave me alone. You're not going to understand. So they take us to this conference room upstairs. And uh, there my mom was. So. Ta-da! Yeah. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> so the man says, looks at me and says, I thought you said your mom is dead. So I'm looking at my mom. And my mom was like, why would you wish me dead? Why would you wish me dead? If you want to do drugs, that's fine, but don't wish me, don't wish me dead. So uh we have a long talk, and then they say the same deal they gave to the lady, we have to go to rehab. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I um on the second, two weeks later, on the second of March, I went to rehab in um Lagos. And I was there for six months. And uh I got out of rehab. When I was in rehab, I uh, got into a relationship with somebody in the center, which, of course, is usually never good. You know, we don't allow that in my center right now. But before you get into that, can okay. you walk us through what rehab was like? I believe this was your first time mm, in rehab. Mm, what mm. was that like? Okay, rehab was tough because... Uh, you you you're put together with so many people, especially the way rehab is done in Nigeria. You know, every they use a blanket approach for everybody and just expect that because you all are struggling with addiction or struggling with um, substance use disorder, the same treatment method should apply to everybody, which doesn't work. We all have different underlying issues. Some of us have pre-existing issues or predisposing issues or certain risk factors that are causing us to use those substances. So you can't expect that you put me and XYZ in the same rehab and treat us the same way. So it's tough because the guys in rehab think they're doing you a favor. You're the one who has a problem. They've brought you to us. Let us treat you. And you're trying to explain to them that this is not working. But then they think you're sick because you're struggling with addiction. So why should they listen to you? No, do what we say you should do. And so it was tough. And then, of course, there were the withdrawal symptoms, which is even tougher it's tough. It's sick because you actually fall sick. Especially when you're withdrawing from um, opioids. Heroin, tramadol, pentazosine. The withdrawal symptoms are terrible. So you have pains in your joints. You have diarrhea. And the only thing that is going to stop these things is if you have your fix. But of course, nobody is going to give you. And in the rehab I went to, it's total abstinence. You know, in some rehabs, they do some sort of reduction. Yeah, to ease you out to of it. To ease you out of it. Yeah, but where I went to was no, no, not even a cigarette. You know, so it was tough. And then, you know, I started making friends. There was a guy, let's call him Y. He also was in the UK for a long time. 
So we could relate on some level. So he was my friend. But he didn't finish. Uh, three months, he couldn't take it anymore. And he left. He went straight back to using. And then there was a lady who... Uh, okay, now, at some point in Abuja, before rehab, a long time ago, I did drugs with a very popular celebrity. Up to now, she's one of the top there. So we're at the hotel at the Hilton. And we're doing so much drugs. Then one lady comes in who apparently is her friend too. So that was the only time I saw her. But then I now saw her in rehab again. Yeah. So we're just talking and then we're talking about that other celebrity lady who was using or who was who was using. And uh, so we became friends. We just had the bond, me, the guy and that lady. So that's what it was. Um, there were those therapy, those um, group therapy, individual therapy, motivational interviews, things like that. So all of these things are meant to change your mind to make sure you don't use when you come out. So I got into a relationship with a girl who was a lot older than I was, maybe 10 years older than I was. And then um, when we left rehab, I started seeing her, which was a bad idea because we both relapsed. And then it was terrible, especially for her because she lost her child. Yeah, due to... and. You know, due to negligence because we're using. So it was really terrible and awful for her. And then at this point in time, I had to leave Lagos and go back to Abuja. And then my parents were tired, so I was back in the bunk. And then just doing things that I had been doing. So at some point now, this is going to get interesting. They t- they, my parents are like, okay, let's... I had given my passport, my international passport, my visa in it, as collateral to a dealer. And the dealer disappeared off the surface of the earth. Hey. Sometimes I think somebody's using my passport somewhere around the world. I don't know. Probably. Then, yeah, probably. Yeah. Because we never found him again. So he had my passport and I had taken drugs of uh, 525,000 naira. So he had my passport. Um, had a Schengen visa and had a UK visa in it. So that went. So my parents were like, okay, they need to... Okay, I also want to talk about the people I lost. Because yeah. I lost a few friends. So I'll start from the first one before I get back to where I was now. Um, let's call her Z, XYZ. So on Z now, she was a very intelligent young girl. Her father, very popular politician up till now in Nigeria. And then um, when we went to UK, when I went to UK for my master's, she, she came and she was using heavily in the UK. So she came back to Nigeria for something and then she also started using crack. So her parents were like, okay, you, all the parents were, were bothered about was that she was embarrassing them here. Because like I said, father, very popular politician. So they moved her back to the UK. And she's all alone in this mansion in central London. So you know what she does? She didn't have friends. She would go to the streets, get junkies, bring them into her father's house and buy drugs for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's wow. what she was doing. She was doing this almost week in, week out, week in, week out. So she would always call me and say, this is what I'm doing. And I'm like, okay, just be careful. Just be careful. So she comes to Nigeria. And then I'm in her house. We're doing drugs. And then she's supposed to travel back to the UK. And she tells, she tells me, she says, David, I don't think I'm going to make it. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I'm like, why, why, are, you saying, why are you saying that? She's like, she just feels that this is the last time we're going to see. 
So I'm like, nah, don't talk like that and stuff like that. So the motorcade is in front of the house. She gets into it and she goes to the airport and she's like, you know, she she was waving at me like she knew that was the last time. Yeah. And then she goes back to the UK. And then we're talking. Then it was Bibi. <laughs> Bibi. Mm-hmm. We were always chatting on Bibi. And then she tells me that um, she's going to have one of those parties that she does. So I said, okay. So she goes out, buys the drugs, sends me the pictures. She goes back home. And then um, I don't hear from her again. So I'm worried. And I tell my friend, who he, this Spaniard guy, he should go to her place and see if she's all right. And then he gets there and says he can't get into the house and all of that. So I say, okay, he's just call 999. So he calls and then um, the police comes and they break into the place. And then while the police is there, I was on the phone with him. I could hear the siren of the ambulance coming. So I'm asking him, what's happening? Talk to me. And he's like, he can't see. He's outside. He's far. He's in a, um, what do they call those stores that they sell cigarettes? And, corner shop. Yeah, it's one of those corner shops. So he's watching because he doesn't want to be too close to whatever is happening too. So, but I could hear this ambulance driving and then I'm talking to him and he's like, okay, they are wheeling her out and she's covered all totally. So, Oh no. How old gone. was she? She was 21 at the time. Yeah, so that's the first person I lost. And it was very painful because she was a good person. You know, she was a really good person. She just lost her life to struggles with addiction. Okay, so now, um, my parents now said, I didn't have a passport anymore. My parents said, okay, let's bundle him. Let's take him somewhere else. So they arranged with one of the pastors of my church in Ibadan. They're like, okay, we're going to bring our son to you. He's just going to be there, get him any sort of job. Let him change his environment. Maybe that will help. So I'm, I'm in Ibadan now, and I'm doing well. I have a car. Uh, it's been three months. There's been no drugs, no cigarettes, no alcohol. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. This life is actually good. So one day I take my car out to wash, and I'm standing by the car wash. And somebody's on the phone speaking Hausa language. And he's saying, okay, Yenzu, Akwe, Gram, Godagoma, Ahanena. Can I so white cook? Can I so off? What does that mean? Right now, I have 10 grams with me. Do you want cocaine or you want heroin? And I'm like, does this thing follow me everywhere I go? <laughs> and then I walk up to him. And I'm like, this is, I heard you say this. I was speaking house to him. And he said, yes. So I said, please, can I have some? So I was like, who am I? So I'm like, no, I'm not a cop. I'm not trying to get you arrested. I've just, I'm new in Ibadan. I don't know where it's sold. I don't know. Just can you help me? So he looks at me, looks at me, looks at me. And then, he takes me somewhere and he gives me and I pay him for it. So I'm like, do you have bunks here? Because I don't want to have to be calling you. I live in a church. Where can I go and stay? And he's like, okay, I'll take you to a bunk. Oh, no. So he takes me to a bunk. This was in November of 2015. Where in Ibadan? Um, Basharun. Okay. Okay, good. So he takes me to the bunk and then I'm now in the bunk from November from November 10th or thereabouts. So I'm in the bunk and I'm, I'm there. All of the money I'd saved in three months, I'd spent it in like two weeks. And then I'm trying to sell the car. But then the dealer just wouldn't collect the car. Maybe because he wasn't used to me or something. He would, just wouldn't take it from me. So, and this called me Abuja Boy for some reason. So, so one day he says, Abuja Boy, go home. Go home and change. You've been here for over a month. You've not had a shower, nothing. You just, all you do is borrow phones to make calls and you go home, take these drugs. I'm giving it to you for free. Take this gram. Just go home. 
get yourself together, then you can come back. So I said, okay. So this was a night. So instead of going home, I started driving around the town. This was around 12 midnight-ish. And then I'm around the challenge. Huh? Then I have a nasty accident. The drugs fall off my hand. And instead of focusing on the road, I'm looking for it. So the car was a write-off. And then everybody who saw me thought I was dead. Um, this leg, my right leg was broken. My fibula was totally fractured. It was off. So people gathered, a few people that were out. And then I wasn't feeling the pain, you know. So I was wondering why they were, you know, our Yoruba people can be dramatic. Ah, putting their hands on their head. And, uh, my, and uh, I tried to stand up and I felt I couldn't stand up. So everybody said, no, lie down. They were speaking Yoruba. No, stay, stay, stay. And then I pull up myself to look and I see half of my leg that way on the floor and then there's blood and everything and I'm like, oh shit, David, what have you done? So, one guy comes, a good Samaritan, he puts uh, wood underneath my leg just yeah. to hold it and then he puts me at the back of his car. Then they take me to UI, University, UCH, that's UCH, what it's called, yes. UCH. And then before he, he gets there, they've started making calls. So the consultant, um, orthopedician, is that what it's called? Comes down. He doesn't even do anything. He just looks at him and he says, oh, they should prepare to amputate my leg from my knee. Mm. He was making, he was frantically telling the, to, to prepare the operating table. And uh, So I'm just looking, like, what, whatever you guys want to do. So this man that took me there says, no, sir, we, we don't want to amputate him. What, what else can you do? And he looks at it, looks at it, and looks at the bones and says, no. And he said, this is bad. And then, because we're taking too much time from that place to here, he said, it might be infected already. So it's better you amputate it now. So this guy says, no, you're not going to amputate it. And the guy's like, okay, then why did you call me out if you're going to tell me my job? And he angrily walked away. This guy drove me to another hospital. We met a professor. And that one looked at it and said, we have to amputate. And uh, this guy still says, no, you can't amputate him. Isn't there anything that can be done? And then this new guy is even saying we're going to amputate from the waist because he says it's really bad. And then this guy still says, no. He starts making calls and they tell him about another hospital in Dubai. Now, the doctor in that hospital just finished NYC. Young guy. So these two professors in these big places have said that you amputate. What are you going to do with a guy that just came out from school? Well, he takes me there. This guy was sleeping in the hospital. And he wakes up and he looks at it and he was like, why didn't the so-called professors even cover it up? Yeah. Why are you driving him around like this? That should be the first thing. Cover it up and prevent any further infection from coming in. So that's what he started doing. You know, Then he gave me um, morphine, which of course, they didn't know I was already... So the cocktail of the buffet was just crazy. So um, he covered it up and then he says he can't perform the procedure. But then his lecturer in OAU, Professor Ogunimbe, works in Obafemeolo University Teaching Hospital. If they can get me there, he knows that his, his teacher is going to perform. So now they now ask me, okay, because this good Samaritan has tried. He's the one paying all these bills. He said, okay, can we call your parents? So I gave him my mom's number. And then he calls my mom. And my mom is like, she's waking up from sleep. And she's like, who is this? And they tell him, uh, and says, your son has broken the leg. And my mom, my mom can be very dramatic. And she's like, ooh, I know it's a lie. I tried to get money from me. And she cuts the phone. 
She's like, so, I don't and this have... is like a, the boy who cried wolf situation. Exactly. <laughs> so she's like, you're not going to get one naira from me. And you, that you're even helping him to tell these lies. My God will judge you. I'm like, mommy, no, my leg is broken. She just puts up the phone. Oh, no. And they're like, who else can we call? Because we need to take you to OAE. I said, okay, call my dad. And my dad, as soon as he heard my voice, he just got the call too. So I was all by myself. So this guy now takes pictures and sends it by WhatsApp to my mom. But her phone was still off. And then he takes me down to OAU and gets the card, talks to the Professor Oginimbe guy and makes an initial deposit and leaves. What a good Samaritan. And leaves. So my mom had now seen the pictures and she knew it was true. So he had told her that this is the hospital I'm taking him to. This is the contact, whatever. So she started making calls. So she flew into Ibadan. There's no airport in Ife. Then drove, yeah. uh, drove down to Ife. So she came... And she saw me, and then, you know, it was it was a bittersweet moment. So that night, she made payments. And then she's now trying to find that guy that brought me. And till this day, we never found him. Whoa. Till this day, we never found him. So um, we had the procedure that day. And then he put the doctor, chiseled part of my bones that were already rough, the edges. I'm trying to fix it back. Put external fixations, internal fixations. And hung my leg up and told me I was going to, it was going to be like that for three months. So I said, okay. So I'm in a private ward now. My mom is there and I'm like, okay, mom, you don't need to stay anymore. Just go back. I mean, you don't know anybody here. So she goes back and then there's a nurse that's dedicated to cater for me. And then when I started getting better and then I could drop the leg, I couldn't walk on it, but it wasn't hung anymore. Then the addiction came again. Addiction can keep you in a dangerous cycle for a very long time, as it did to David, and it can ruin so much around you. Your relationships, your health, your life. And we're far from done with his story. This is just the first part. Next week, we'll be back with more on David's story, including how he finally overcame his addiction after many years. If you're struggling with an addiction, please know that you are not alone and there are avenues for help. Please reach out to us. You can send us a private message on social media and we'll put you in touch with rehabilitation centers and doctors that can help you depending on your location. You can also reach out to David's Foundation, which we'll hear more about in the second part of this story. Their email address is info at Folarami is spelt F-O-L-A-R-A-N-M-I. Or you can call plus 234-909-3899-406.